Duncan. James. How are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm feeling really good, thank you. Um, really ready to get stuck into this week's episode. Cool, let's do it. All right, so this, we are talking about the problem with romanticism. So this is uh, based on a, a talk that um, a, a renowned, uh, 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 I think he's a journalist, Alain de Botton, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, see, James and I had a chat to support this. <laughs> How are you going to pronounce it, James, when you, when, you, when you first said this? Oh, what you mean? Alan de Bottom? That's what you said. You seriously said that. <laughs> uh, so, whilst Alain de Baton, um, oh my God. I believe you pronounce it, um, <laughs> has a very British accent. He's actually born in France, um, but he went to school um, like at Oxford, I believe. And he's not a journalist. I believe they technically call him a philosopher. Um, and I, he's one of my favorite living philosophers. Um, and another one being uh, Michael Sandel, who's an ethicist. Oh. Uh, another one being like Peter Singer, uh, as an example. Um, but yes, Alain de Baton. And so we were laughing before, but James has tried to cover it up. You should have said it how you, you, you saw I, it. I did. I said Alain de Botton. Like, that would not... Did you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, his surname's almost Bottom. Yeah. Um, which is pretty good. Like, my surname isn't Bottom, but I think it's probably better than Anderson, which is pretty standard stock, something well, or other. Peck, Peck is up there somewhere, surely. <laughs> it's up it's up near your chest right. yeah uh, well i'm very interested um I, i'm surprised that he's one of your favorite philosophers um so i'm really keen to get some insights on what we can talk about on his views of romanticism um so he gave a talk at the sydney opera house uh, not too long ago i think it was at the festival of dangerous ideas or he'd done, he'd done ted talks on similar topics uh, and what he goes through is, uh, first of all, the notion of romanticism. Um, uh, in a nutshell, he purports that we are in the age still of romanticism, even though it was born out of the 15th century, and that our lives today, um, our relationships, and our understanding of love is built upon the notion of romanticism. So I'll just go quickly through the assumption that he um put forward in terms of what they that are they are so the first one is that we have a soulmate or that you know it is our destiny to find our perfect partner um number two you will find this soulmate through instinct or feeling number three you um you get a special feeling when you fall in love and that is something that will carry you throughout your entire life um and so that's actually part four it's forever till death do us part and Part five, love and sex go together. And that sex is the ultimate expression of love. So these are what he um, under, underlines as the key um, tenets of romanticism. Would you, uh, would you have any thoughts on those, Duncan? I think that's what he says society says. I don't think that's what Alain de Baton is saying it should be. But he's sort of saying well, the society gives us this kind of story. Yeah, so to be fair, he is outlining as a premise on what romanticism is generally accepted as and then yes he does go into a couple of ideas around how this could be uh i guess rectified or reconciled in a much better or um, sustainable way yeah um so i don't think he's saying that's what it should be i think he's saying that that's what the story society tells us hmm. that romanticism well, is I, you will find someone and they will be perfect and they will complete you and you'll be happy yeah. and if you don't find someone you won't be happy so you must find that person and if you're not happy yeah. because they're not the right person you know 
and not because perhaps you might be not good at relationships or good at communicating um, or that even if you necessarily need one to yep. be happy. Yeah, so to, to probably uh, be better with my questioning, Duncan, is this what your understanding of the general view of romanticism is? Not what's your view on romanticism, but do you think that this is accurate? Yeah, I think it's fair enough. I mean, I'm sure everyone is different, but I yeah. think for a sort of typical Western society, this is sort of the stories that, you know, we are told. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that it's true to the point that he raised, but I'm just, it, for me, it's fascinating because one, like I need to be told these things for me to be able to understand it to the level of detail that he's put forward. I've always held romanticism at a much simpler level or um, a much more basic regard, which is um, the notion that relationships are based on love, not on necessity or on, um, you know, what they have been doing since the dawn of mankind, where it was um, for land or for survival or for all these other needs. And so I'd always seen romanticism as love being the basis for relationships. So a much simpler uh, way of looking at it. Yeah, so this is, you know, what, um, so Armando Baton is, uh, I think, the founder of the School of Life. Some of you may have heard of this. They've got a big YouTube channel and a bunch of other things, books, etc. Um, and he sort of talks that the age of romanticism, I think, was after the 15th century, they say, 17th century. Mm. Before that, typically in, say, Europe, um, which was a sort of agrarian society, i.e., you know, farming, not hunter-gatherer, roaming, most marriages before then were kind of done from a strategic point of view, mm. i.e., we can, you know, what's the dowry that you're giving with your daughter <laughs> to marry my son? <laughs> a goat. And, yes, a goat. <laughs> or maybe if you're wealthy, like a castle or something. Um, and that... Then when the Industrial Revolution happened, um, so one of the things they say is that before sort of 1500, I don't know why they picked 1500 because mainly after the Industrial Revolution, the only way to get rich was to take money. You sort of stole the gold or the castle from somebody else. But since the Industrial Revolution, the world hasn't been zero sum. Um, and because of that, you know, everyone can be wealthy, not only the lords, you know. Uh, and with this, the idea of needing to marry for, I don't know, land or strategic reasons has changed, has shifted. And the sort of rise of the idea that you marry for love came before that it never really was a concept mm. apparently that's what you know the historians tell us mm. i wasn't alive yeah no um so this this is all a very very um like it, this is where it gets a little bit complicated because like i definitely to your point i can see that marriage is a very very big part of romanticism but i think there's three parts here that we can kind of explore there's romanticism, the notion of, um, you know, what it is that drives relationships today. There's love and what is love and there's marriages and why do people get married? Um, and so, like, I think if we take one step back and look at, first of all, what is love? David, don't hurt me. Um, <laughs> uh, and one of the things that Alain de Baton... Uh, <laughs> He's, he's literally introduced in the video, which is what I find great. I think James and I shared this video because it's from 2016, like, round about when it came out. And he's introduced with his name, and you still. I, I listened can't to it, it. it. I listened to it on like two, two times speed. So it's just, yeah, so what? I love the song. I hear the word. I love the song. So one of the other things he puts forward is um, he also um, he quotes an author about. Um, most people wouldn't be in love if they hadn't heard of it in the first place. Um, I don't know if that was uh, word for yeah. word, but it's an interesting notion to think of. 
But love, it, which is also very, very hard to pin down, is not exactly a new uh, construct. Uh, there are, there's evidence of it going all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, but one of the things I thought that they did a lot better than what we do today is have different ways of identifying love. Um, they had four uh, basic, they had four words for it, um, and they all had a different kind of aspect towards what we would consider to be one large overarching um, loving nature. That so they had a agape, which is um, so it's the the charity, the love of God for man and man of God. So it's basically denoting feelings towards your children and your spouse. So that's kind of like the most general area of love. There's eros, which is more sexual in nature, which is intimate love. There's philia, which is affectionate. So this can be um, you know, more like a friendship kind of love between equals. Uh, and then there's, okay, I'm going to mispronounce this, storge. <laughs> <laughs> I think go <laughs> which is more um, um, more affectionate between um, parents and children, so to speak. Um, so I think yes, there is a way in which you could argue today I probably wouldn't ever fall in love in a romantic sense if I hadn't heard of romanticism. But I do think that love as a feeling um, is a little bit more embedded in our psyche. What would you think, Daniel? Yeah, so um, maybe pick one. Um, love is a feeling. Um, so there's, I, I quite like this four different, uh, you know, things. So I think we'll just repeat: love um, as charity. Um, so you love, you know, to give to others. Love from a sexual perspective. Love from friendships, and then love from like a parent-child type mm. thing. Mm. Um, and maybe let's just get into the love as a, uh, a you know, sexual passion sort of feeling one. So. Humans are wired to procreate. <laughs> so there's a lot of biological wiring inside of you. Um, and James and I were talking about this just before we got on the thing. You know, boys, when they go through puberty, there's like a massive onset of testosterone. And I remember like you go from before that, like, you know, you're playing in, at school or whatever in the playground and, you know, you're good. And then puberty comes along and all of a sudden, you know, before you just looked at, I don't know, children as children. And then you'll see a female human and you'll be doing whatever you're doing. And then all of a sudden, you're seeing a female human and you're thinking one thing. And I think all people, not most, you know, teenage boys, I don't think they're, you know, exactly the height of, <laughs> you know, rationality or other things. But I remember there's this stark difference from we're cool, you know, we're, we're playing around in the playground to like, oh my God, like see female, can't not think about procreation. It's like, like just your whole system is just overridden. And so there's this like massive onslaught of, just you know hormones and so i suppose that's probably the first part we are biologically wired to procreate and once we hit fertile age like your body is like procreate 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 like see see female want to procreate and it's it's i don't like i personally don't didn't really like it i mean i mean you sort of did at the time like it sucks that you you don't have a choice in this it's basically decided for you so yeah so this is a really interesting aspect and how um easy it is for us to have this part of our brain that overrides our, our thinking. So to, your, to, to Duncan's example of going through puberty to suddenly, from going from ooh, girl to yucky to I must procreate, <laughs> you, you, you yeah. don't even consciously understand what's going on in there, but that's uh, your body coming to a point where it is now, shall I say, fertile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, uh, and so it's actually issuing commands that you haven't 
uh, fully understood before. And because we don't fully understand them, it's easy for us to conflate them with other feelings. So when you see that girl, you know, in the library or uh, at a bar, like totally random selling Bacardi, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's when it's, you don't understand where these feelings come from. And so it could be easy to suggest that this is the feeling of falling in love. And when that happens, it's, it's a tricky one because in on one way, scientists can easily show you the neuron firing off in your brain, the dopamine being dumped into your body, the physiological effects of that. But then we attach this very woo-woo notion of love to it and start to get the two confused. Yeah, so... Um... One of Alain de Botton's points is, would you fall in love if you hadn't been told the stories of it? Mm. Um, so cognitive behavioral therapy talks about three things. You have thoughts, you have feelings, and you have behaviors. And they're kind of intertwined, so you can't necessarily 100% separate them. Um, but feelings, um, I'm going to you know, describe here, and I'm sure people is, is more like the chemical emotions going off. So every thought you have is actually a chemical reaction in your head. And your body is pre-wired for certain things. So as a boy, when you hit puberty, you know, you see a thing like, to procreate with. And I mean, obviously, you know, it's not, not all people are, you know, necessarily, you know, heterosexual, but for some people, and then, and then it's like, whatever you were thinking has changed, right? And it's dumping this like chemical reaction into your head. And then if you go and speak to somebody, what, what actually both sides, what body's meant to happen is to what I think most people refer to as love, which is this feeling of when you think of someone, you feel happy makes you feel content all these things and so i actually love watching the bachelor because i believe that the actual feeling that most people think of as love is this chemical reaction in their head that goes up when they meet someone and they talk about chemistry because it literally is a chemical reaction going off in your head and you're, you're they're basically waiting to meet someone and they want that chemical reaction to happen which dumps and so it's actually a combination of oxytocin serotonin and dopamine i was looking into the studies and different parts and different things together and it's like this cocktail oh, those are the three good emotions right mm. and then you're like holy shit i've never felt like this before mm. so and what what actually you mean is i've never had this level of chemical reaction in my head before before life felt you know was this this hadn't occurred and so people's idea of what love is i think on the bachelor is when that chemical reaction occurs and that's one part which is the feeling side of things mm. um and this was done because what you know we, the human race wants to do is to procreate and so they talk about the three phases of a relationship, infatuation at the beginning, which is two to eight weeks, in love, which is the first two years, and then in a relationship after. That infatuation stage is where the chemical reaction is going off. And at the end of this time, someone's meant to be pregnant. You know? And so you don't, care, you don't care about anything about them that's bad. You know, anytime you think of them, you feel good and happy. And that laugh that might annoy you, it's not. So it's basically our biological wiring. It's like, see, thing to procreate with. Now think about procreation. Get close to thing that can procreate with. Now interact with that. Now have oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine go off. And it's like, oh my God, best feeling ever. Now we should cohabitate. Okay, let's cohabitate as hard as possible for the next two <laughs> to eight weeks. And at the end of that, hopefully, you know, nature's done its thing and, and there's a new little human forming. Um, and so this is the kind of wiring that we have built into us. And when you don't realize that, you're like, oh my God, I think I love this person. And I think often you know, those feeling feeling strongest at the beginning. But what it is, is, is the wiring. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think this is really fascinating. Uh, it's, it's quite re revealing the insights of the inner working of Duncan's mind and how he has, <laughs> how he articulates his dialogue. Like, oh my God, superhuman must 
cohabit as hard as possible. <laughs> so um, going back to your original question around, you know, would you fall in love if you knew what it was? Um, I say I say yes. And it is to <laughs> the same example that you gave, which is the first, let's call it phase of love is this chemical reaction. I mean, they have shown that, um, you know, quote, quotation marks, falling in love has the same chemical effects of being high on cocaine. So it's easy to see how something like falling in love can be quite addictive. And, um, you, you know, I, I don't know if it was Alain or someone else, um, they talk about that you are actually addicted to the feeling that you get that the other person gives you. Uh, and it's a similar notion to another book that Duncan and I have spoken about, which is The Five Love Languages and how you go through in the early stages of this thing called the honeymoon phase, where this other person is considered perfect. And anything they do just gives you just this high, this high feeling of um, you know, elation and joy, and everything is perfect, everything's great. Um, to that, to me, would make me feel like I'm in this sensation called love. But then what happens afterwards is that this chemical imbalance starts to subside, because... Um, you know, exuberance is soon replaced with familiarity. Um, and this is where I see one of the core tenets of romanticism breaking down. So I would say, yes, I would be, I would still think of this notion of love if I hadn't heard of it before, but I would be very confused by what happens when the love suddenly starts to disappear. And so I think this is where knowing about love actually helps people about the next phase after the honeymoon phase. Yeah, so one of Alain's points is like, would you fall in love if you hadn't? And I think that at James's point, you can get this chemical reaction to occur from other places. Like for instance, if you eat chocolate, it mm. makes you happy, you know? But then you're not told a story of, oh, now I should fall in love with chocolate and have a monogamous relationship with chocolate for the rest of my life and never eat any other foods. Not that we're advocating okay. against it, if that's your thing. <laughs> Chocolate's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I honestly think that this is not true, what James says. Like we, we are all, you know, affected by the stories that we're told from birth. We're inculcated into society's views, you know, to our morality of the day. And for better or worse, I, I think that we are told a story that you're looking for this. And I don't think you would necessarily. I think that in the future, the stories might change fundamentally. And that I think that there's definite, you know, positives to spending time with people. Um, but... I think that, you know, if you look at this, you know, people are getting divorced after nine years in Australia now. <laughs> um, you know, the, the time to divorce is going down. Um, people are less happy, you know, and there's different things, but like basically like the people who have arranged marriages are happier than the people who have picked their own ones. Mm -hmm. So three years in, so that the peak of happiness for someone who picks their own one is the day they get engaged. And then it's all downhill from there. <laughs> um, and the peak of people who, who have arranged marriages is kind of a few years after they get married. And if you look at people who you know, there's different studies, you know, get married and don't, you know, after sort of three years, they're kind of break even of where they would have been if they didn't get married. Mm. And then obviously if you get divorced, it's pretty generally not a great time. Yeah. Um, so I honestly don't know if we would fall in love. We'd have the chemical reaction and you'd feel awesome, just like you do when you eat chocolate, uh, you know, but would you fall in love? I don't necessarily think you would. Mm. So um, I guess maybe I should have made my point a little bit better. So I, I agree, Duncan, that we are shaped largely by the stories we're told. You know, this kind of comes back to this nature and nurture um, notion. And I'm a big believer that nurture 
um, plays over time a much bigger role in who we are as people and um, values that we have than inherent nature. So um, I definitely think a lot of our understanding of love and how it you know, should be played out has been formed by the stories that we've heard growing up. You know, thank you very much, Walt Disney. Um, mm. But I still think having known nothing else, and I can't put myself in this position objectively, but I know, I, I know the feeling. I know the feeling of when you first meet someone and you're just like, your brain melts down. You're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God, like, just be cool, dude, just right? be cool. <laughs> all of these things that you suddenly have no idea where it all comes from, you know? Um, and that feeling maintains itself at the very beginning of this relationship. And I'm, and I'm not consciously thinking procreate, procreate, I am thinking I want to be with this person more strongly than I've ever felt with anyone else, like as a friendship um, or as a family member or any other kind of relationship. And so just trying to think of what I would um, like connote that to being like, it would be this feeling of love because I've been alive for X number of years, let's say 20 and I've never met anyone like this before, and suddenly I'm feeling all of these emotions that are far stronger than anything I've felt before. Um, like, of course, I wouldn't put a name on it, but I would certainly say that this is something different, and also remembering what it was like to fall in love, not knowing that that initial chemical feeling subsides. You would want to be in that state forever, which is why I think some people think that you know, this notion of love is forever because when you fall in love and you have that chemical reaction, you want that to last forever. At, the, at least at that point in time, you want that to last forever. Does that make? Does that help clarify? Yeah, kind of. So I think that for most people, up until that point, you know, first time I fall in love, and this is what I say, first love. You know, people who believe in relativism is that your feelings and emotions are relative to what you have before. So you have a previous high watermark of the best feeling I've ever felt. And then the first time you fall in love, which is when you have the, the oxy, dopamine, and serotonin go off at the same time, um, you're like, holy crap, mm -hmm. I've never felt this way before, ever. And then society tells you you're meant to fall in love, and you're like, this person is making me feel this way. Mm -hmm. uh, this person's giving me this chemical reaction. <laughs> um, and then you think, I must be in love with them. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the things also that people say, um, for females anyway, that the reaction that goes off when they, after they've given birth, is actually a lot stronger than when they fall in love. And so, so a lot of them will say, like, I thought I loved my husband or whatever, but that is nothing. It pales in comparison to this kid. <laughs> and net, 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 when they've measured this, they've had the love you know, chemical reaction go off for the kids much stronger than mm. what it was beforehand. And so it is, again, nature bonding you. So it's like, you want like, look after this thing, don't let it die or else humans are all you know, <laughs> stuffed. And so, so, so again, like, is it, is it something you would do or is it just... A, a you know chemical reaction in a story, mm. and I honestly think that so much of it is story. So if you look back through time, when we were hunter gatherers, there was not this idea of a monogamous nuclear family. This is a modern construct. So for the vast majority of human, you know, how old people think humanity is like 100, 200, 300,000 years old, but only since the agrarian revolution stuff has it even sort of been a little bit. Mm. And that is the earliest ones are like 5,000 years ago. Mm. So. Most people weren't monogamous. Yeah. It's just a story that we've invented recently. Yeah, so monogamous aside, I'll, I'll offer you a counter um, example to that. Um, so they say that 
around 200,000 years ago when the um, the modern equivalent of man first came out of, um, you know, the, the homo sapien uh, gene. Um, this was when we became uh, upright human beings. We walked on our uh, two legs and we started um, carrying our babies instead of just having them straddle on our backs. And the mothers who are the most vulnerable um, people at this point needed a man to take care of her and her child so that she and they wouldn't die. There's <laughs> uh, um, a very, very, um, well, there's a com comedian who articulates this uh, reality or this particular notion very, very well when she talks about um, why women are crazy and men are stupid. <laughs> and she said that, um, you know, the woman's vulnerable and she has a baby and she needs to be looked after and she says to the man, um, can you please go get some food for me? And the man's like, fuck yeah. Uh, and he goes out and he sees an elephant and he chases the elephant, but he can't catch it. So he doesn't kill it. And so he dies. And then the mum and the baby dies. And then there's another new mum and baby who says, can you go get me some food? And the man's like, fuck yeah. And then he goes out and he sees this other woman and he goes, and he looks at her and the mother's like, what, the, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you looking at this other woman? Go help me. And the guy's like, no, you know, um, and then he gets hit on the head and dies. Point is, the last woman is slightly crazy. <laughs> and she said, can you go get me some food? Don't chase that elephant. Don't look at that other woman. And just stick to picking berries. <laughs> and the reason being is that she has to be slightly crazy because men are slightly stupid. The point is that this notion of partnering has actually, well, is, is argued to have started when women first were vulnerable because they had to carry their baby and so while it wasn't necessarily a monogamous relationship i don't know whether that was the case they did sh show that there were elements of a long-term partnership at least while the baby and the mother were vulnerable that a man and woman were together um so i think yes this notion of a marriage is a lot more recent but as human beings we are um God, what are they called? Uh, anyway, uh, like when it, part of our nature is to have partnerships, if that helps. Um, the stuff that I've read says the exact opposite. <laughs> we, we were in hunter-gatherer tribes and we sort of roamed, you know, and looked for food and you worked as a tribe. And this means that, the, you know, the men went off hunting together and the women, you know, gathered or whatever, you know, and, and looked after the children. Um, and it wasn't a nuclear family, uh, it was a tribe. Um, so yeah, I think looking at this, I think we've talked about stuff from a sort of biological wiring. Like, yes, we are biologically wired to want to procreate and a whole lots of chemical reactions happen on this. But one of the other ones that was in there was sort of talking about, um, not necessarily physical love, um, but love for other people and Plato, um, this is where platonic love came from. Um, now, I'm going to butcher this. This is my description of it, and I'm sure someone else says it's completely wrong. Platonic love is more a love of the soul, of the person, you know, and, and you know, I don't know. Physical love is more a love of the flesh. <laughs> um, and I think that whilst a love of someone's soul is not going to necessarily give you that crazy um, procreation, uh, you know, sort of wiring, but you can definitely have really enjoyable reactions or interactions with somebody, which cause, you know, good chemical reactions. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is kind of what sort of matters more for the long term. <laughs> um, you really enjoy interacting with someone. And if you're talking about platonic love, which is a love of the soul, I believe you can have this for many people. So I, there are people who I think have beautiful minds. Um, 
And when I interact with them, it is enthralling and rewarding and energizing. And so as an example, these chats with James that we now record, I find this. So I have platonic love for you, James. And I was wondering if you think that that's a fair way to describe love or if you think that's just bollocks. Well, no, I think to, to borrow the example of the Greeks, I think that is a way to describe love. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's probably one of the, um, in my mind, the key uh, weaknesses around the notion of romantic love, having a monopoly on what love is. Um, so yes, to your point, you can have platonic love. Like, love doesn't just have to be romantic love. Like, my love for my children, I don't think is romantic love. <laughs> my love for my family is definitely not the same love that I have for you, Duncan, my friend. So there are different aspects to it, or um, you know, whether it's Philia or Eros or any of the other ones. Um, but I guess if we take a step back and look at it from a higher level and what it is that is consistent across all these different types of love, um, we can ask ourselves, what do we think love is? Um, so I, I don't know, Duncan, if you have an idea about this at a macro level um, or not, but I can give you my thoughts and then we can take it from there. I'll jump in. So again, I think there are different types of love. There are. Um, so I think, you know, to take in cognitive behavioral therapy is this place. There's feelings, thoughts, and behaviors. I think there's feeling love, thought love, and behavior love. So feeling love we've sort of talked about. This is the chemical reactions that your body is wired off to get, and they don't last forever. Mm. They're kind of two to eight weeks. <laughs> um, then I think there is thoughts love. Um, so for instance, when you you know speak to somebody and you're having a discussion, you're thinking, you can find that really rewarding and really engaging, and it, it makes you happy. But it's not the same sort of intense like holy, you know, what the hell's going on in my head, you know, sort of chemical reaction. And then behavior love is kind of a sort of, sort of this unconditional. Like, are there people you would do anything for? And that doesn't have to be like you know blood. You know, it's kind of like what I refer to as family, <laughs> not necessarily blood family. Um, you know, yeah, I would do anything. You. And I kind of think you want to have this like unconditional love of, sort of 10 people in your life. Mm. Um, they say you can't keep up with more than 10 people and have a really deep knowledge of what's going on in their lives. Um, you, the more you do, the less time you can spend. And I kind of think, well, if, if you can know 10 people well, you would want to be, you know, do anything for them. And so for me, yeah, those are the sort of three types of love that I think about. Mm. Um, and I don't necessarily think they all have to come from the same person. They can. You can find you know, the, the, the feeling love. But again, that feeling love doesn't last forever. Yeah. I think after a while it goes normal and then you might have thought love and behavior love in the same person. Yeah, so I think we can talk about this in just a moment, about this notion of one life partner versus um, whether or not you can get love from one or multiple people. Um, but I also want to also offer that um, while you've got this uh, model around feelings, thoughts and behaviors, I see that as a completely different vector to the ways in which we define love. Um, simply because, you know, the, the feelings we, uh, we talked about were, you know, chemical reactions. The thoughts we talked about don't necess necessitate whether it's a romantic thought or a, um, a platonic thought or otherwise. And behaviors are, you know, the things that you do to, in to inspire love. Um, but I did like what you talked about unconditional love or this um, thing that you want to do for other people and giving this some thought i won't say i went too deep into it but if i tried to describe what love actually is 
I would say something to the tune of selfless devotion. Um, so just a quick acknowledgement. You, I don't think it's entirely possible to be 100% selfless. Like there is a selfishness to every act. Like just saying, you know, giving to the poor makes me happy. Well, that can considered to be selfish. But when I talk about selfless devotion, I mean the driving force around your feeling, thought, or behavior um, is that you want to serve this other person or other thing if it's chocolate that you love. <laughs> um, and that actually made me think about it a little bit more. So we talked about this in the past and some people might have heard of this. The opposite of love is not anger, it's indifference. And I've... Uh, not hate. Yeah. yeah, sorry, you're right. It's not hate, it's indifference. And I've always struggled with that because I don't see indifference as the opposite of anything. I feel like indifference is like this zero... Uh, point on the scale and you can't have an opposite of zero. I feel like it's this middle point I think what they're saying is that love is feeling things mm. and the opposite of love and hate is feeling strong feelings mm. And so indifference is feeling nothing. That's mm. why it's the opposite. Right. Well, so the I, opposite of a strong feeling is no feeling. That's what they're saying Well, I want to try and try, try and offer up a different way of looking at it uh, and say the opposite of love is selfishness now, I know people can say well, there's self-love but when I say selfishness, I mean that your pure uh, driving force is to just serve your own means and not anyone else's. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Duncan, or if you um, want to put forward your own uh, point of view. Yeah, so I don't think there is necessarily one definition of love. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, you know, I was sort of breaking it. I mean, there's many ways you can look at it. Um, but feelings love is, is perhaps the chemical reaction, which was biologically wired into us. And behavior love, really, is what you're talking about. And it is, you know, perhaps servitude. And would you do anything for somebody else? Um, and one of the things they say is that you love the things you have cared for. Mm. So if you've cared for another person or if you've cared for your child, then, then you love them, you know. And But then by that thing, you can care for things like, you know, my dad likes cars and he cares for them. He, you know, gets them service, looks after them, puts love and care into them. And honestly... I think he loves some of them. <laughs> like he has a strong emotional bond to them. And so I think that the, the definition you put forward then, I don't think there is such thing as like a one definitive definition. I think there's many different things. Mm. And so for me, I do think that you cannot only have love for a romantic partner. You can have love like James and I, you know, yep. for each other. And I think also you can have love for inanimate objects like a car and you can have love for something like a business. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that you can. Um, and one way of looking at love is, you know, would you, you know, have unconditional and would you sort of do anything for it? Yeah. So I think you and I both are all, definitely have found convergence on there being a very, a vast multitude of different ways of love and different aspects and different um, ideas. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about is the idea around partners and life partners. And like, I guess a subset would be the notion of marriage and how that has been played into this modern notion of romanticism. So um, for anyone who's listening, uh, Duncan and I come from different uh, ends of the spectrum on this because I myself am very happily married for um, with the same partner for 10 years. I haven't been married for 10 years, full disclosure, uh, but I've been with the same person. Where Duncan is very happily single uh, and would probably extol the virtues of having multiple loving relationships um, be varied as they may. Uh, 
Um, I think the just before James, like um, I am single. I'm not sort of talking about polygamy or anything. I just think that you, for instance, yeah, yeah. can have, um, I don't know, love for James, yeah, yeah. love for the business that I work on. Love. I mean, I think for yourself, you're in a relationship with yourself, and if you don't have love for yourself, then I think you should not that you know. There's some people might say loving yourself is like being full of yourself, but I think if you hate yourself, that's not good. Yeah. Um, so, I, so um, you know, to me, you want to find the relationship, yeah. nutrition, or nourishment that you want, and it can come from many places. <laughs> And I think that a lot of people look for too much of it from a single source. Yeah. And that, that it's possible to get it from there. But also, if that source no longer is providing with all the nourishment you need, then it's, it's perhaps a you know risky thing and then you can, you can feel unhappy. Mm. And so I believe that I have rewarding, nourishing relationships in many places in my life and that they can be from things like a business that I honestly believe that my dad actually gets love and nourishment from looking after this old car that he has mm. that, you know, just makes him happy. <laughs> yeah. So um, with all of that considered, like, and I think regardless of whether you are in a single lifelong relationship slash marriage or not, you can still have multiple sources of love. Um, but, <coughs> excuse me, um, I, I would be from the school of thought that I still see value, even in today's modern society, of having a lifelong partner um given that i'm incredibly biased in my opinion but i'm interested in what your thoughts are duncan even considering that um it would be if we say it's universally agreed upon that there are, you know you don't get all your um, sources of love from one person but do you still think that there is a place in the modern world for people to have just one lifelong partner yeah, I think you're putting it forward. I don't think there is one answer. Like, mm. I don't think everyone should have a lifelong partner. Yeah. Everyone shouldn't have a lifelong partner. And I think that partners can be great, but also, like, maybe it works for 10 years and then the world changes or you two change. It doesn't. Mm. Um, so I don't think there is one answer for me, let alone that my answer would be what answers others should have as their answer. Yeah. Um, so, so what I would say is that, like, you know, they say that good friendship is time well spent. It's not about spending a lot of time necessarily. And so I think actually a lot of people who might, you know, live together, whatever, they don't actually spend much quality time with each other. I, whether engaged, they just happen to be in the same room <laughs> at the same time, you know, watching Netflix or having surface level conversation, like how was your day? Um, so for me, we sort of talked about, I uh, sort of three areas, feelings love, i.e. the chemical reaction, thoughts love, behavior love. I think that a, a long-term partner done well can give you the thoughts and behavior love but that feelings love is going to wear off, which is that honeymoon period at the beginning. Mm. But I also think you can get thought and behavior love, not just from a long-term partner. So I would say that James is like heavily indexed into one person. I don't know what percentage of your thought and behavior love comes from them. And I would say that I have sort of 10 people that I'm really close to, half of which are my family, half of which are actually my blood family, and half of which are my non-blood family, James being one of which. And... I honestly feel that it's probably like the, the biggest person in that is probably like 25%. And the smallest person is like 5% of like my nourishment of that love and those things. Um, and so one of the things I've sort of realized is you can kind of decouple the thoughts and behavior and feelings love. And I think when you meet someone, I'd say, in a, you know, sort of possible, we're going to, you know, do some sort of flesh interaction. <laughs> um a lot of people have been really skeptical. They're like, I don't want to fall in love with someone. I need to be really special and other stuff. And so their brain, because your thoughts affect your feelings, right? They're trying to make sure that if it happens, it's really important. And I found that's kind of like leaning out. What you can do is you can actually lean into it. 
So you're like, you know, if I can get this to happen, do you understand the chemical reaction that's going to go off in my brain? It's like epic. <laughs> so instead of meeting someone and being skeptical and trying to make sure that they meet all this, you know, jump, jump through many hoops, I'm like, exact opposite. Lean into this. Mm. Let it be happy. You know, this thing like, I want this chemical reaction to happen. And then you're like, you feel it kicking in. You're like, oh. <laughs> and so, so, so in effect, you can have like a series of like, I don't know, interactions. And as I'm talking you know, openly, I'm like, you know, I've got a full life. Um, in my opinion, and I'm not saying that I can't make space for other things, but there isn't spare time at the current time. Mm. But then you can have like a few, you know, maybe, you know, every six months you sort of, you know, have sort of, you know, sort of general interaction with another person. And then you have like, you know, the first two months of where it's like, you know, feeling chemical reaction love town. And you can actually have that as sort of series of things over and over again. So maybe you can get them all, mm. basically. Yeah, so there's absolutely no one size, but there's no one panacea for everyone in the world to adhere to. Um, so I, I certainly didn't want to make it like um, whether or not a lifelong partner should be the um, you know the approach for everyone in the world uh, because you know to your point everybody has a different I, I guess makeup of you know how they uh, you know could could get the most out of their own individual lives um, but they you know because romanticism is a relatively modern uh, creation. It's upended this idea of having a lifelong partner or having a long-term partner, um, if we want to be fair. Um, based on what we spoke about earlier, it, whether or not we agree in the very, very early days of man, um, partnership were based around survival of the mother and the child. Um, go back to 10,000 years um, when we developed agriculture, it was about land, it was about um, you know, it was about creating wealth between families. Um, a real ironic sense is that it was so that you could get in-laws as opposed to the modern notion of having to deal with your in-laws. Um, but today it's about having a partner because we have based it on this, uh, you know, impermanent feeling of love, um, but whether we can cultivate a long-term thought and set of behaviours around love is something that, as you pointed out, is leading to a lot of divorces, a lot of unhappy people, um, and a lot of confusion around, well, hold on, I've been sold my entire life on this idea that there is true love or romantic love, but if I look around me, I'm seeing you know people divorce and get miserable. I'm seeing a lot of partnerships break down and so I guess the question is, do we think that the, the idea of romanticism is what's wrong or do we, do, do we think that we're just doing it wrongly, incorrectly? Is wrongly a real word? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's a very interesting point. Um, and I would say that, again, there isn't one answer, that some people having a great relationship works really well, but other people... Um, I, I know that like, you know, if you're in your mid-30s and you're single, in some respects, people treat you like a second-class citizen. Like, what's wrong with that person? Why haven't they found somebody? <laughs> um, and then I think people sometimes settle in the worst sense of the word. They compromise and like, oh, you know, I want to have kids and you know, I don't want to be lonely. And so I do think that there are many paths. And I think that society, at least in the West, you know, sells you this story that you must find someone. And if you don't, you won't have a fulfilling life. And I just don't think that that necessarily is the case. Again, I think finding someone can be great. I'm not saying it's not. 
Um, but I also think that you can be having a perfectly great life without a, you know, a, a traditional definition of romantic um, life. And so one of the key questions I sort of had for you, James, is what's the best difference between a best friend and a romantic partner to you? Mm. Now, let's just ex exclude the like a sort of flesh, you know, exchange side of things or the cohabitation. <laughs> um, but like, you know, like you, you, you tell me like, what, what's the difference? Excluding the fact that like, you know, um, I don't know, James and I aren't sleeping with each other. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts? So, okay. So my thoughts are this. There is definitely, in my mind, a big part of this being a dual support network for raising a family. Now, I like big caveat, there are plenty of happily... Uh, people in happy marriages and happy partnerships that aren't, you know, raising families. Um, but I, to, to answer your question, I see a big part of it, you know, the difference between a exclusively best friend, because I also think that my partner is also my best friend, um, mm. and having a romantic partner or having a life partner is the, you know, is the creation of your own, I guess, your family, you know, whether or not you have children together or whether or not you just um, your, yourselves are in this um, couple together. It's an idea that you have created your own, I guess, joint identity as um, two people who are together. Whereas friends, um, albeit as good as friends as you are, you are sh not sharing your lives together, but you are, uh, I guess, partaking in life together and enjoying and supporting and um, you know, relishing the moments that you get to share. The, the second point is, so what I get out of my partnership with my wife more than anything else, uh, and I think this is where um, marriage also comes into it, is this sense of whether you want to call it education or self-development or um, learning that you can only get when you are really, really, really bound to someone else. Um, so, Alain de Baton <laughs> um, would, would say that um, one of the things that we all need to accept as human beings is that we are flawed and a little bit crazy. Um, but your friends won't tell you you're crazy. They just want to have a good time. Your family won't tell you you're crazy because they love you unconditionally. Um, these are his words, not mine. And I'd argue the opposite. The people closest to me tell me the truth, and I sort of architected it around. Hence, hence the caveat that these are his words. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the reason why you have a partner is because this is the one person who will tell you your flaws because they cannot stand to live with you otherwise. Uh, because as being imperfect beings, if you, um, you know, so the key word is like, you don't want to have the highest elation or the highest feelings for your entire life. You want to maximize the level of comfort for as long as possible. And when someone has certain traits or behaviors that drive you mad, the best thing for you to do is to bring those to their attention. Now, this is just one example. Um, I can definitely, um, go on about others where my personal growth has been made only possible to the sheer fact that my partner has stuck with me for over 10 years. So hopefully that might help answer your question. It's a, it's a depth of development and growth greater than any, um, just any kind of friendship can offer. Yeah. So, um, 
what James is hitting on there, development and growth, I think that's crucial. Mm. Uh, but I don't think that it has to, to be only in a uh, you know, romantic relationship. Mm. Um, I think a good one, you help each other grow. You know, Socrates, the purpose of a friend is to help you better than you otherwise would have been. Um, but I think you can also have that at work. Most people spend the majority of their waking hours at work. And unfortunately for a lot of people, they don't like their job. <laughs> if they weren't getting paid, there's no way they'd be going. But I think that a job done well, you know, it can be something very different, just like a relationship done well. Um, and that a job done well, you can actually have the ability to build something. So James talked about building a family together. Um, James talked about helping improve each other. Um, and I think that you can have both of those things at work. So I feel as an example, like I have that at my jobs, Eduardo and Altel, um, that we are building in case of Eduardo an education company to improve education, that I have wonderful co-workers who I have deep relationships with. And we're not just saying something to someone to, you know, because we can't stand it otherwise. We're actually constantly, honestly looking to try and improve each other. So there's really downside to adding upside. And we get to, you know, then have a steam side of things. We get to have the self-actualization side of things. We get to have the transcendent side of things. And so I kind of have, you know, as part of these sort of 10 people that I talked about that I have unconditional love for, three of them are people I work with. Uh, five are personal, you know, all, uh, you know, family, blood relation. And two are people, one of Jackie, which is James, you know, another one is, is another friend. Um, and so I think what James is talking about sounds like a really good, you know, I don't know, romantic relationship. But I also think that the nourishment that he, he was talking about is not something that's only available in that space. Hmm. In fact, I think you can get it in many spaces. Now, I'm not saying you should have to have it in everyone. I think, again, you can have friends that are just good time friends. You go and you have a laugh, and I think they're really important. You do need to stop, recharge. You don't need to have intense self-improving or building a family or building a business. Um you can just, you know, have a hedonism, you know, but I think you can get that in many places. Yeah. Um, so I want to be fair, Duncan, that I 100% agree. In fact, I would also go all over, entirely over to your camp to argue that a good friendship is one that where two people help each other grow. Good relationship, regardless of their nature, is one where you help each other grow. Um, what I will say, though, is that a life partnership um, or to be more specific, a marriage, um, is where you can go to a depth of self-discovery, self-exploration and self um, and growth that I don't see as being available anywhere else. Um, so there was a, there was a, a rather well-explained, um, well more um, macabre, is that the right word, macabre, macabre, <laughs> uh, description of marriage which would basically you and your partner or two people um, announcing to the world, I won't run away. You can be your truest, most vulnerable and most messed up self and I will stick around and help you get through it and, and, um, and grow. And so that's kind of the, the this idea is that we're not, um, you know, inherently bad people. We're not inherently assholes, at least not all of us. But many of us do have um, unexplored imperfections and are maybe a little bit crazy. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes friends can see this as like, oh, this guy is just difficult. I can't bother dealing with them anymore. 
or sometimes you just can't get on with your family because let's just agree we can't get on with our family. <laughs> but when it's your partner that you have um, chosen to dedicate your life towards, <laughs> you're not just going to be like, well, I'm just going to ignore them for the next 20, 30 years. You could do that, but you wouldn't have a very fulfilling life. Or you could say, well, I have committed myself to this person. They are um, expressing or they are going through something because they have some unresolved, uh, you know, uh, 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 challenge or problem. Um, but ultimately, it's because they have made themselves vulnerable to me. And vulnerability isn't admitting your flaws, it's acting through them <laughs> in a way that doesn't, couldn't quite be considered loving. So that's where I see this partnership um, model as being different to a friendship model. Cool. Um, I'll just touch on a couple of points. Um, one was that you said, uh, you know, good relationships are where you help people grow. I, I think some relationships, you know, I like that. but again, I think I have wonderful relationships with some friends that I see once a month and we just have a really good laugh. So I don't think that there is one size of relationships uh, in one sort of thing. There are many, many different types. Um, so I think that we can, you know, sort of look at things from, from many, many different ways. Um, one of the things I think James also said is that it's, you know, you go deeper um, with, with a life partner. And I think it's possible. But again, um, they say to do a startup, it's a minimum of a 10-year commitment. Uh, in Australia, at least, it's eight years from um, marriage to um, separation. Um, so, uh, you know, it's quite possible that you're spending more time in terms of years. It's also quite possible that you're spending more waking hours with somebody. Um, when you are interacting with them, it's not necessarily time, it's quality. Um, often people don't necessarily have, you know, ways to dig into sort of deeper things. And I think if you are building a business, you can. Um, and I think also some people with families do it epically well, you know, having children. And some people do it not so well. Um, you know, and some people it's just removing downside. Let's make sure there's a clean nappy. Let's make sure that they're not hungry, you know. But they're not, you know, looking at esteem, you know, growth mindset, uh, helping them to build skills, you know, understand, you know, a love of learning and other things. And so I think that it's entirely possible, but certainly not guaranteed that you can get all the nutrition that James is talking about, not necessarily from having to have a family mm. from other places. Mm. I think that it's very possible, if done well, that a family can give great joy, great you know, reward, but that it's possible from many places. Mm. Um, so I'm definitely a, a huge proponent of this model that uh, Duncan talks about in terms of um, you know, whether it's meritocracy or whether it's just um, helping people grow in the workplace. Um, there are really, really great examples out there, um, you know, Bridgewater being one of them, where by being vulnerable in the work um, environment allows people to, um, you know, build trust, allows people to develop faster, allows people to perform at higher levels. Um, but I also, from experience in some organisations where that is apparent, I can't profess to know what it's like in all organisations, but I have definitely experienced areas in my relationship where I am fairly confident that would never have been explored in a professional uh, environment. Um, these, are the, these are much deeper. These are much more uh, withheld. These are areas that, you know, you yourself do not, are not even aware of, or I myself am not even aware of. So this may be something that's entirely subjective, um, uh, but that's kind of what my view is. And 
yeah, so I hope that uh, helped that clarify just a little bit. Cool. Um, we're hitting the hour mark, so we normally now get into rap time. So I'll start with this. Um, my summary is that there is feeling love, um, which is more the biological chemical wire inside of things. And this is when you meet somebody new and everything seems awesome and you have the biggest dump of happy chemicals in your mind that you ever felt before. <laughs> um, but there are other types of love as well. And I sort of term this like thought love and behavior love. Um, I think you want to have, for better or worse, love of those types in your life. Um, so thought, love and behavior love. And I think that they can come from many places. They can come from a traditional lifelong partner, but they can also come from places like work. Uh, they can come from inanimate objects. They can come from your relationships at work. And I think that you can get a little bit of nutrition. Like you say, like, I have a passion for whatever it is. Like you're really into poetry. And maybe there's only, you know, you have a person in your life that feeds you that nutrition. You only catch up once a month. And, you, and, you know, you have like a three-hour catch-up, but you're like, that was awesome. And so I think that it's what I try to do is figure out what kind of nutrition I want or I believe I need. And then I try to figure out how the different ways I can get it. And I'm not trying to find it all in one person. In fact, I think it's possibly not, it's probably not possible to find it all in one person. Um, and yeah, I think you want a fulfilled life and love as part of that. Um, and so you can look at optimizing for that. Very, very, very good uh, summary, Dave Duncan. I'll try to do justice by doing a similar wrap-up. So um, if, if you look around uh, today, you see a lot of uh, flaws in the notion of romantic love. Uh, you know, there are breakdowns of relationships, there are marriages that are failing. There are the, all of these ideas that suggest to us that there is a deeply embedded problem with the notion of romanticism. Um, however, my, um, I guess my source to that is just because um, something isn't working, it's not, um, it, it could be simply because it's not done well, not because it's inherently flawed. Um, if we, talk about the things that uh, we went through today that in a partnership or in a friendship or in any different uh, multitudes of love it's not just about putting all of your eggs in one basket or putting it all on the idea of it simply being a feeling but that is done through thoughts and it's done through um, it's expressed through behaviors as well there are uh, tools that can make a loving relationship still have a strong role to play in the world today. Um, I think, you know, a lifelong partnership is one aspect of that. Uh, to, to Duncan's point, it's not the only expression of love. It's not the only model that people should derive from. But I definitely think that um, there are ways in which it can be done better so that people will, uh, you know, get out what they put in, in from a loving perspective. Yeah. Cool. I definitely agree. Um, you can do relationships good and you can do them bad. <laughs> and that there's, you know, we should hopefully be able to help people understand this rather than just sort of trial and error. Anyways, next time we're going to be talking about this book called Insight. Um, I think I talked about a quote from before. 95% of people think that they are self-aware, but the studies show that only 10 to 15% of people actually are. Mm. Um, and one of the first things they talk about in the book is understanding what your values are and where they came from. This is a way to help begin your discovery of self-discovery. And so we're going to go through part of this, which is about our values and where we think they came from. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be talking about that in a week or two. Cool. See you, James. All right, Duncan. Bye.